This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And so I want to give a special thank you to George Turcott, Basem Saad, Tiffany Peng, Martin Bull Goodmanson, and Ernie Sawada, who all just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 390 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Nikki Drayden. Her short fiction appears in magazines such as Shimmer, Daily Science Fiction, and Space and Time, and on podcasts such as Pseudopod and the Drabblecast. As a college student, she traveled to South Africa, which is the setting for her first two novels, The Prey of Gods and Temper. And we'll be speaking with her today about her new novel, Escaping Exodus, about a matriarchal society that lives inside a massive space-going beast. And now here's our interview with Nikki Drayden. All right, so we're here with Nikki Drayden. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so how did you first get interested in fantasy and science fiction? Um, I think I've always been interested in science fiction and fantasy. Um, I, I can't remember a time when I wasn't. Like, that's kind of what I always like to watch on TV. Um, particularly started reading, I think in sixth grade, I started getting into, like, Stephen King and um, reading some of that more fantastical slash horror kind of stuff and this book was really interesting compared to uh, kind of what I was reading before, which was like a lot of Judy Bloom and like stuff like that. So, um, it, yeah, it just kind of opened up a new world for me. And I really um, liked the imagination that went into creating these different worlds. Did you find those books on your own or were there friends or teachers or anything that sort of clued you into the fantasy and science fiction? I found it at Target. <laughs> I saw, uh, it was Eyes of the Dragon, which was like the first kind of introduction that I saw. Um, and fantasy, and it just looked cool. So I picked it up and read it and just loved it. And um, I think that was Stephen King's like more kid-oriented fantasy. And like all the rest of the stuff was very much darker and more adult. But like I was reading it anyway, probably my parents did not know. <laughs> but uh yeah, it was just really fun. I remember like Tommy knockers and just like being creeped out and just that feeling of, you know, something being out there that was not of this world. Um, it was really cool. So if your parents had known you were reading Stephen King, would they have not approved of that? I, I don't know. I think they would just let me read whatever, but they hadn't pre-screened any of it. <laughs> I think that was a different day. Back in the day, there wasn't really much like um, like YA and that sort of thing. So um, it's just kind of you read what you read, and that's what I was reading. On your website, you list your favorite authors as Neil Stevenson, Octavia Butler, and Christopher Moore. Do you remember how you first came across them? Um, well, Christopher Moore, I came across uh, The Stupidest Angel in a Half Price Bookstore. And I remember just like picking up this book and just like laughing at the, the cover and like, how could I not like? By that. And so um, I read it and loved it and then read like a whole bunch of his other stuff. Um, and I, I met him once at a signing, which was like super cool. 
Uh, and it, it was just like, I just loved his humor and just, there was just like so much of it on the page and like the storytelling was so much fun and just like ridiculous. And I really like fun and ridiculous stories. Um, Neil Stevenson, I also discovered at, at a half price books, my, my writing mentor, Richard, um, basically dragged me to this book. Uh, it was Cryptonomicon and like, just basically was shaking because he was like remembering like the scene in the submarine that really like, uh, I guess like made him very claustrophobic and like gave him this like very visceral reaction to reading it. And he was like rehabbing this reaction while he was trying to get me to buy this book. And so I bought it and like, I loved it. And I just kind of just the level of detail and geeking out on like all of these, you know, I read a seventies, like was the last book I read of his, and just like, you know, he he's probably the only person that like I would, you know, go with on like a 20 page ramble about whatever he wants to talk about. Um, I felt like I had like some kind of like honorary D degree in like astrophysics, like by the time like it was over. And it was just like, I don't know if I ever became a zombie, like his would be the first brain I would want to eat because I just imagined <laughs> it would taste like so amazing because like, there's just so much weird stuff in there and interesting things. So, um, and Octavia Butler, uh, let's see, my mom bought me Kindred, which I still have not read, but I've read, um, let's see, I think the short stories, Blood Child was the first book of hers that I read her collection. And, um, yeah, I was just like totally blown away. And so I've been kind of pacing myself, um, cause I don't want to run out of books, but I've read, uh, several of I think exogenesis series I don't know if that's how you pronounce it but like Dawn um I just remember reading that one and seeing like this, the complicated uh position she puts her characters in like one of the characters has to basically choose who is going to like re after an apocalypse like choose the people who are going to like become the next humans to repopulate the earth and like she's given a, a list of like qualities of all these people and like has to pick who and I'm like how like would you even go about doing that and like I'd hate to be put in that situation so it was a really fun uh, thought exercise for me um, and just a lot of mostly it's a lot of thinking with her and just how complicated humanity is it's really cool I was gonna say yeah I mean if your mom potentially had any misgivings about Stephen King I wonder if she knew what Kindred is about when she bought it for you uh well I was fully an adult so okay. so at that time but yeah I I'll get I'll get around to that one eventually. Uh you mentioned that you have a a writing mentor Richard how did how did you meet him? I met him I let's see I joined a writing group this was a long time ago um like maybe a few years after I'd started writing it was just kind of it wasn't a genre group or anything. But, um, yeah, he would, like, just, I would bring in, like, pieces of, like, the first novel that I had written, which was, like, in 2004, and it's, like, buried deeply in a a, a uh, drawer somewhere. But I would bring, like, pieces of it, and he was just, like, really interested in reading more. And so, like, we ended up, you know, getting together and working on that and trying to get it um, into a publishable state. And it was... Um, just a lot of learning about craft and learning about story. And we broke it down. Like, uh, I don't know. He's a very unconventional writing teacher. So he would do things like, uh, 
she would take me to this was back when there were borders, take me to borders. And like, I remember one exercise that he gave me was to, um, we looked around for like quite a while, maybe 20 minutes and like different covers and like what makes a good cover. And then like, I had to go around and, uh, pick all the books that we had like talked about and find them again in the store. And mm. I don't know, it was just really fun. And then one of them, the exercises was to like pick a book where the cover like repulsed me and then read it. And it ended up being, uh, I think it was a Flamenco Academy by Sarah Bird. And it's just like this really frilly like cover. And I ended up like so loving the story. Like it was something like I never would have picked up like on my own. Um, but it was just like a lot of just kind of random ways of learning about writing and what goes into like the publishing business. Is, is he a writer or editor or something? Uh, he used to be an editor. Yeah. Editor a while back. I mean, you mentioned that Christopher Moore is one of your favorite authors. And I really I grew up, um, you know, a lot of my favorite authors growing up were like Robert Asprin and Craig Shaw Gardner, sort of funny fantasy writers. And I feel like they don't get enough uh, respect in fantasy and science fiction. So I was just curious if you how do you feel about do you feel like fan, uh, that, that humor is underappreciated in fantasy and science fiction? Uh, I, I kind of do. I think. Yeah. And I. I do feel like it's not as appreciated as much as it should be. I think maybe with the exception of like Terry Pratchett, Douglas Adams. Um, but yeah, it is kind of does set you apart for people who like take things seriously or whatever, I think. But I, I like, I mean, I like to work in myself humor within like really dark pieces. And I think they, for me, they work together really well. Um, and like my goal is to have the reader have kind of like this, uh, an emotional reaction to the book. So whether it's like laughing or crying or like sometimes if I can like do both, like within the same chapter, like it's really cool. So, and I think like kind of offsetting like some of the dark stuff I like to write about with a little bit of humor really helps not to alienate the, the reader too much. Cause it is, you know, it can get pretty dark. Um, so yeah, I think, I think they work well together. I mean, I was looking over your bibliography and a lot of the stories have what seem to be funny titles like Skinny Jeans of the Zombie Apocalypse and You Had Me at Rarg. Would you say yeah. Would you say a lot of your stories are like what percentage of your short stories are, are humorous? Oh, that's a good question. That's probably, that's probably maybe half and half, I would say. Sort of half humor and half horror or? Half. half. I would say half like humor. Definitely. There's a lot of tension to potty humor. Hmm. Um, and then half like more dark. I wouldn't say horror. I think like bordering along horror, but not quite. Um, just going to some dark places. One of my favorite stories, I think, was kind of the inspiration to Escaping Exodus um, was about a this race of people who live aboard this like sentient ship and it's like a flock of ships and this particular ship is like an alcoholic and it won't recognize that it has a problem hmm. and so there are people um, specialized people who can kind of go into the organs of the ship and kind of like the liver is really sick and so they're trying to you know make this get the the, the bad parts of the liver off and all at the same time they're like praying to the ship to like realize that it's sick and to like make the caretakers or the people who have like gills and stuff so they can kind of operate within the organs. And so they're praying for more caretakers to like make the ship better. 
and the ship is just getting worse and worse. And then as a result, like the cycle is like breaking down and it's a really dark story, but like, I think it's my favorite story. Um, that one's called our Junk- drunken Chang. It was in a daily science fiction, but, uh, yeah, just, there's not a whole lot of humor in that one either. <laughs> um, it's just kind of where my mind likes to go. It just likes to go in weird places, whether it's like funny, weird, or, are kind of dark weird. So how did you get started publishing fiction? Well, um, it was kind of a rough start. Uh, I think I sold my first story for $5 to a magazine and it was like, they wanted me to pay like $6 to get like the e-copy to read. <laughs> so, uh, so, so and for it was the math like, challenged well, people at home, that's a uh, profit <laughs> minus $1. Correct. And so, uh, but I was like so proud that I'd finally sold a story or whatever. So it was kind of a mess. And then um, a lot of, I think the next two or three stories, like I'd sold, like the the magazine folded before like the stories came out. And so it was just kind of a rough start. But I had a, for me, like I'd started, I started writing like novels first, but I started publishing short stories first. And so it was, I had like a lot of short stories at one point in time and I would just like have them sending, sending them out to like different places and, you know, getting rejections all over the place. And eventually like I started to, you know, sell some. And so it was just kind of, uh, just a lot of kind of like almost a part-time job to like kind of juggle all these different, you know, stories going to different magazines and stuff like that. Uh, and eventually I guess, it was much later when I finally got an agent for um, the Prey of Gods. That was in 2011. And so it took like almost four years to sell it. And like at that point, like I had kind of almost given up and like my agent hadn't given up, thankfully, but like we were kind of in talks of like rebranding it as like a YA novel and like taking out some characters and doing like, certain things and I was like in the process of writing that when we finally got an offer um from Harper Voyager and so like I was just really excited to you know finally be living the stream that I'd had for a very long time and it was just like a really great experience um the book got a lot of positive you know feedback and a lot of people liked it and it was really you know something that was really weird and uh, people still liked it. So it was really nice to to see that, you know, there's an audience for the kind of things that come out of my brain. <laughs> so how did you meet your agent in the first place? I just cold queried. Uh, yeah, just had a list and she was at the top of my list, actually. And uh, it just happened to hit. So <laughs> worked you, out really well. Do you think there was anything um, about your pitch that stood out to her particularly? I don't know if you ever talked about that with her, but. Uh, I, I mean, I really worked on, at the time I was a part of, uh, absolute right community, um, online. And so there's a lot of, uh, places where you could go like within that to get like query critiques. And so like I had critiqued that query, like so many times just to get it like as perfect as I could get it. Cause you know, sometimes you just, you have one shot with an agent per book. And so you want the, the query to be as best, the best it can be. So uh, I think I sent her my best query and I thought she thought it was good too. So she requested pages and then requested like the full thing and then finally got an offer. 
So how were you describing the book um, when you pitched it to her and to editors and stuff? Um, I do not recall how I pitched it. I mean, it was just a query letter, but, and it was, I mean, pretty similar to, you know, what ended up on the back of the book. So. So, so yeah, what ended up know. on the back of the book? Uh, did not have it in front of me right now. <laughs> but it, it's uh, set in South Africa, right? And there's sort of robots right. and magic and. Right. So see, the book is about, it's set in a futuristic South Africa, and it's kind of brimming with these sentient robots and disgruntled demigoddesses and uh, some hallucinogenic hijinks. And so um, it it features a lot of dick-dick jokes because there's these little antelopes um, in South Africa that I kind of remember. I, I visited South Africa when I was in uh, college, which is kind of where I got the idea to set the book. Um, and I just remember like we were kind of driving around and like these little antelopes would kind of just jump out the, like in the front of the front of the van we were driving and just like, I just, I don't, I remember it happening a lot, but I don't know if it actually happened a lot. Cause you know, your memory kind of makes these things up. But so I put like, you know, there's a plague of dick dicks in the book and um, just a lot of fun and random kind of things that I kind of, I call it kind of like a travelogue in like a fictional format with some fantasy elements thrown in. Um, there's like, you know, tree people and a lot of like folklore that I got to kind of make up my own folklore because I think it's kind of fun how, you know, people, what people believe about their gods and where, you know, where these stories come from. Um uh, there's a, a queer teen that's kind of coming into his own and trying to figure out his sexuality and the backdrop of him having uh, developing superpowers at the same time. And so his superpower is uh, he's able to control people's minds, but every time he does, he kind of has um, to take on their like darkest memory and it just kind of comes on as, as his like weighs on him, like it really happened to him. And so he has to really figure out how he wants to use these powers, if he even wants to use them for good or, you know, for not such good purposes and uh, what he wants to do with those powers and if he wants to use them and the, you know, repercussions of using them. And so it's kind of fun to follow him along. There, the story is written from six point of views. So there's um, the teenager, Musi. Um, there's a, a politician who's kind of struggling with, with things and what, what he wants to do with his life. Um, there's a pop diva who has secrets of her own. There are, there's a sentient robot who comes into sentience, uh, and is trying to struggling to figure out what's going on with it and a robot uprising. And it's just kind of like everything in the kitchen sink thrown into this book. But it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Cause like when I started it, I just, basically had a stack of character sketches that I, and I, I do national novel writing month and I don't ever like plan anything. So I just basically like picked these six characters, dropped them into the setting of South Africa and then let them like figure out what to do. And so I had to figure out a way to kind of like braid all of these narratives together in kind of somewhat cohesive way. And so that was a fun, really fun challenge for me. And then so you were kind of like, well, that went so well. I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna write a second novel also set in South Africa. Uh, I think so. Like you do so much research, and then it's just like, well, you know, might as well write another book because, like, 
I spent all this time researching. So, um, but uh, yeah, I, I really liked uh, writing Temper, which is also set in South Africa, but it's more of an alternate history um, type of South Africa that where uh, like Africa wasn't colonized and uh, it kind of, you know, things didn't quite go quite as well. Um, as you would have hoped either, um, there's a, a, like a heavy, I think just kind of from these, you know, attempts to protect itself from, you know, being colonized and like these outward attacks has kind of drawn in on itself. And a lot of, it's like a heavy religious hand trying to keep people in control. And it's like technology and science have been deemed like immoral and so people are, you know, there's like underground science sex and stuff like that. And also there's a lot of uh, fantastical slash horror elements. Uh, one of the, the characters uh, becomes kind of possessed by a demon and he doesn't have enough money. In, in this world, like demon possession is, you know, pretty common occurrence, but he doesn't have enough money to like go get help for it. Cause it's kind of expensive to get an exorcism professionally. So he and his brother, who are twins, and in this world, also everyone, mostly everyone is a twin, um, and they're kind of linked together in this uh, kind of metaphysical way. Um, so they, they're kind of forced to figure out how they can, like, exercise themselves and, like, make themselves knowledgeable enough to do that. So it was kind of a fun and very dark uh, trip following their adventure to kind of rid themselves of these voices that they're hearing and these, like, powers they're getting that they don't necessarily want to have. So when you say that you did a lot of research, like how did you go about researching South Africa? And um, yeah, did you talk to anyone? I mean, you said you went there, but did you have anyone who kind of review the manuscript to see if it was accurate and stuff like that? Right. I had like a lot of uh, sensitivity readers for that one. I think I probably had six altogether. Um, from different cultures. So I have a lot of different cultures within the book also that are in South Africa. So like I try to get one from each of the cultures represented by the uh, different characters and there's a trans character. So I tried, I got a, a trans person to, you know, read for that character. And so, and it was a lot of, you know, kind of back and forth and trying to, to not mess up and, and to portray things as like accurately as I could get them. Um, and then, you know, nothing's, you know, there's no like right, but there's definitely a wrong. And so I tried not to make it wrong. I tried not to, basically the goal was like for someone from South Africa to read the book and like not throw it across the room was my goal. But if, you know, I want them to enjoy it too, the best they can. So you know, I try to do my best with that. Um, but yeah, it's just a lot, you know, getting a lot of online research and like finding all the details. You know, you get like 90% of the way there is pretty easy. And getting that like last 10% like takes up so much time because there's like so many tiny details. You just have to like go in and research and, you know, fact check and all these things. But it's been fun. I really like doing the research part of it. It's a lot of fun, even though it is quite time consuming. Yeah. And so then your your new novel, the third novel, is Escaping Exodus, and it's it's set in outer space in the far, far future. So that's a you know big change of pace. So kind of what was the origin for this story? Uh, well, I started this story several times, and it was like a nano, uh, NaNoWriMo story, and I'd failed it twice. 
um, and I'd written like a few chapters and this story is about it's kind of like an Afrofuturistic space opera and it's set inside this the belly of this giant space vacuum breathing beast um, and like humanity is set up inside this beast because they they try to get to the, you know another planet but they just couldn't find a viable option but inside this beast there's like all the resources they need basically because there's like this thriving ecosystem that lives inside the beast already and so they can just harvest you know the beast bones if they need building materials um there's you know these giant worms that they you know eat as like a delicacy um and basically they move inside and use the the beast up until it's run out of resources and there's a whole herd of beasts so then they like you know harpoon the next beast and do the same thing so it's just like this awful vicious cycle of being these parasites and i i wrote maybe like four or five chapters and i just i love these chapters so much but like i just didn't couldn't get past those four chapters and so i kind of sat and sat and i read um cameron hurley's stars are legion and it was also this very like oozy, like visceral, like novel um, that was just so gross and so wonderful. And it just kind of really like it was like the book that I wanted to write without having to go through all the, the pain of writing it. And so uh, it, I just really enjoyed it. And I'm like, it kind of re-energized me to like try to finish this. And so like when it was time for me to, you know, pitch it the third novel I'm like well let me just pitch this and see you know what the editor thinks and I thought it was a great idea and so I just kind of ran with it and now like you know I was under a deadline so there wasn't really the option to like not write it <laughs> so yeah I just just started coming out and working and reworking it and turning it into something that I really enjoyed and I love you know how the characters work inside of the heart and just the feeling of it like pumping around you as you're trying to do your work is just kind of really, really cool. And then there's other other classes of workers who work with bone. And so like, you know, there's always bone dust and they have like pieces of bone in their hair. And so like creating all these different cultures within this beast um, was a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, I'll have to. I have to say that what got me to read this book or what motivated me to read it was this blurb from Lightspeed Magazine where it says, Read this if you ever wondered what it would be like if the Millennium Falcon decided to live inside that asteroid worm. And so I just read that. And I was like, <laughs> all right, I got to check out this book. That's cool. Because, yeah, I mean, it's really like you mentioned, like the parts where, you know, the they're inside this giant beast and the heart is pumping. And so every three minutes and 47 and a half seconds or something, the, the chambers all get flooded with blood and they all drown if they're not, you know, uh, anticipating it and stuff. And it's just, yeah, you really get a sense of how how gross and physical uh, it is inside this thing. Yeah. I like that it's gross and physical, but it's also like very normal to them, which I, I just love. And so like, they're not bothered by any of this stuff. It's just kind of the way things are. Yeah. And I think one of the things I, I think is just so brilliantly well done in the book is how you mentioned the culture is, is you get this sense of, you know, there, there are these, there's this culture of this society and it's different from ours, but it's different in a believable way. And there's this real sense of a history that it kind of, you know, has developed over generations and, and kind of makes sense how it ended up the way it is. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of what was your process for like, like how much of that did you figure out of the backstory and the culture and stuff? Did you figure out before you started writing? Uh, probably none of it. <laughs> uh, I just, 
yeah, I just kind of like total pantser and just kind of just go with this, you know, basic seed of an idea. Um, and I really like kind of the idea that, that it's like a matriarchy. And so you, you know, you're, you're paying respects to the, the women that came before and they're like, they're these kind of founding mothers that kind of founded them. And so each of them has, uh, I guess a special, like the way they braid their hair is very related to like the stars that, you know, so everyone braiding hair is like in this culture is like very significant. And like, however you braid your hair, you can tell like which, you know, mother you are from or like the heritage or whatever. And it was just like a lot, a lot of uh, kind of wanted some spiritual things in there. And it's kind of, you know, it's kind of science fiction, but there's also kind of like hints that there could be something more, uh, I don't know, like metaphysical, like these beings or spirits and you don't know if they're real or they're like imagined or if they're real or what's kind of going on. And just kind of, I loved kind of how those things kind of interacted and the superstitions that people hold. Like there's this one part where one of the, the characters pulls out like all these superstitious items and it is explaining what they're used for. And there's like a mirror and like a length of rope and some smelly stuff and all these things. And like the other character is kind of like, you know, what is going on here? Even though she has her own like beliefs that, you know, she kind of accepts is true. Like she has a hard time believing that this person's beliefs are real, even though she knows she should, but it's, yeah, very, like, I wanted there to be that, like, history there. There's, like, um, a book, like, the tomes where they record, like, all their histories um, that our character, Seska, she, she's the, in line to be the matri- the next matriarch, but she's just pretty not well-suited for the job. Like, she's really not into studying history. She kind of, you know, would rather, like, hang out and make mischief than study or learn the ways of her people like she's cheated on her tests like she writes you know the answer to the problems like where her you know they won't be noticed so she can like have all the answers and uh, she's just very impulsive and uh probably not the best suited to be the matriarch but she still ends up in this position of power where she has to make it work because there's so much at stake on the line because you know they're living within this ecosystem and if anything collapses, like their people could be gone. And so there's just like this very weight weighted situation put on to the shoulders of someone who's very young. because She's a teenager and doesn't have a lot of experience and frankly, doesn't want the position to begin with. So, um, but still like, she kind of has to do it because there's really no other option. Right. Well, you have two viewpoint characters in the book, Seska and Dadala and Seska is, you know, very much a part of the upper class and Adala is, is belongs to the lower class. And I was just curious, was that a conscious decision so that you could show the whole, all the social strata of this society? Yeah, definitely. I wanted to show, like, I love like talking about class and class structure and it's just interesting and how those kind of overlap and having the characters see the other side um, from different point of views was a lot of fun. Um, and even though, you know, they share, they're very, you know, there's very, the beast is probably the size of like a small moon. And so, and inside it's kind of more like cram. Most of the people live within the, the stomach 
area, like intestines and stuff like that. And so there's like a finite amount of area that these people have to live in, even though it's very stratified and they typically people don't cross these class boundaries, except for Adal and Tesca are very good friends and they're definitely interested in being more than friends, Hmm. but it's, you know, it's bad enough for them to be friends in the situation and, you know, they have feelings for each other. So kind of that cross class, like it's kind of forbidden for them to, to cross. And so it's always like a fun theme I like to play with. Um, But, you know, and seeing how they're accepted, like, and how they're not accepted by each other's families and how there's just kind of suspicion built in um, to, you know, what they really, what they're doing here, what do they really want? So, yeah. And I think just getting to show how this beast works, because it's people in the upper class, they're having these nice lives. They're eating their fancy steaks. You know, they're enriching the economy and doing research and all these things, but they really have no idea of all the effort and sacrifice uh, that's going on kind of behind the scenes. And so it was really fun to be able to explore that. Where did this idea come from of the will mothers, heart mothers and head mothers and that sort of thing? Uh, (laughs) uh, Well, kind of the idea was that it's been a long journey for them. And as a form of like population control, like they were just kind of getting out of hand. And so eventually there was a promise made that everyone could have a child, but in order to kind of make that promise work, they had to keep redefining like what was a family. And so eventually a family became to mean um, nine parents and one child. And so within that family structure, there are three sets of uh, troubles. I don't know what you call three people um, who are kind of uh, responsible for different parts of raising the child. So the heart parents are responsible for kind of matters of the heart and the will parents are, you know, responsible for you know, helping them to make, you know, moral decisions. And then uh, the head parents are responsible for like education and that sort of thing. And so like every parent set of parents has a, a role in raising this child, which is a very precious thing because, you know, you're only allowed to have one. And so for Seska, she's kind of in a weird situation because um, she actually has a sibling and she's the only one that has a sibling on the ship because a, a situation where both of two of her mothers were pregnant at the same time and she was supposed to be born last. And, you know, she would have, her pregnancy would have been terminated, except for she was born very, very prematurely. And so she kind of beat out her, her older sister, who was, would have been the, the heir to the matriarchy and is really like such a perfect fit for it. And um, just her mother didn't go through with terminating the pregnancy. So uh, she ends up with this sister and it's kind of like the matriarch's like first big mistake that she's made. And so she's, been making more mistakes in this book and so there's this like very heated sibling rivalry like the only sibling rivalry rivalry in their people and it's just really fun to play with this person who's set to become the matriarch but doesn't want to be the matriarch and is horrible for the job and the person who doesn't get to be the matriarch but is 
very much suited for the job. And so they're, they're just kind of rivaling over this position. And I think that was probably one of my favorite, like, character dynamics between those two, um, Seska and her sister. Yeah. So this matriarchal society in the book, is it something that you mostly dreamed up yourself or is it based on any matriarchal societies in history or anything like that? Uh, no, I just think it just pretty much all came out of my head. Um, I just kind of had fun, like just, you know, flipping a patriarchal society and, you know, you think it would be the better place, but no, like they're just as bad. And like, uh, men are pretty much, you know, discriminated against. They're not allowed to work outside the home. Um, and they're only like now just like starting to be able to work outside the home. There's like one character who's like the first accountancy guard, um, male accountancy guard. And kind of there's a lot of uh, pressure on him to do a good job. And accountancy guard is just kind of, you know, on the ship, everything, resource management is very important. So they're just very highly detailed and making sure resources are being used correctly and no one's wasting anything. And so he really wants to do a good job and um, basically willing to do anything to prove that, you know, he belongs here and that men belong there. Um, and so it was a lot of fun, like, to kind of flip that on its head and show how awful that women can be. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and I would say, like, he's probably, like, the most feminist, like, character in the book. And so, and Sessica can't even understand, like, why, why would a man even want to work outside the home? Like, these, like, ideas are just kind of beyond her so that was really fun to play with yeah because i mean you'll also you'll often hear people say that um if women were in charge society would be more kind and humane and stuff and um and certainly that's not how it works out in your book and do you think that that's because that just makes a more dramatic story or do you think that actually in you know in practice a matriarchy would be just as um you know unproductive and you know mean as a as a patriarchy yeah i think totally i think it totally would be as unproductive um, because just like when one, one set of people has all the power, they're going to use that power to, to keep the power. And so if there's like, an, you know, a diverse and even split between who has power, then I think it just kind of ideally would trickle down. Like I think that power does corrupt eventually. So um, yeah, this is probably another book to write, but yeah, I think, I think so. Like, I think it would probably, unless there were safeguards in place, um, I think it would probably be just as awful, basically. Yeah. Yeah. How about you mentioned the sort of spiritual aspects of the of this culture? And there are these figures that they mentioned, like deity and boxy botsy. Are those um, <laughs> just fictional or are those uh, inspired by anything in uh, mythology or anything? No, they're they're. So Deity's Bells, I won't give away, but it's, I'm going to explore. I'm writing like a follow-up to this book right now. And so uh, I plan to get into more of the details because I, I kind of get into books and don't explain a whole lot of things. <laughs> and so like all these characters, Boxy Botsy was a, a character who um, had an affair with the matriarch's daughter at the time, probably like a hundred years ago or so. And um, it was just a very scandalous event, and she ended up getting, like, shot out of the, the beast's anus, which is, like, the worst punishment that you can have in this culture. And so, like, her, her bones are, you know, basically, like, just frozen in space somewhere. And so people 
kind of call upon her spirit sometimes and think maybe she's, you know, haunting people. Um, yeah. And just like, you know, there's, and it's things spirituality and like things people believe are interesting and in how they drive people's lives and different superstitions and stuff. And, uh, are just rituals. Um, also Seska's people, they, there's this thing they have called a spirit wall, which is basically when anyone of like importance dies, they like press their body into this kind of sludgy wall that slowly like kind of calcifies their body and absorbs it. And so like all of the dead people are in this like giant wall. And it, like when you, you go pray to your ancestors, you can go pray to them. Some of them you can like even touch them because they're still, you know, being absorbed because it takes, you know, several decades for someone to be fully absorbed. And so, you know, you light your candle and then, you you know, pray um, for different favors from the ancestors. And it's just very kind of a tactile experience and their, their connection to, you know, death and dying is a lot different than ours, but it's still all very normal. Um, just a thing you do, you're supposed to do it uh, more often than Seska goes, and she has like some guilt about not going, you know, to visit the spirit walls as much as she should. But um, yeah, I just love that, that their relationship with the death is just so much different than how we treat it. On your uh, Reddit AMA, you said that this was the first book of yours that you've outlined, and you said I didn't, I won't, ha- I didn't have to worry about rewriting the ending three times like I did with Temper. <laughs> Could you just talk about the, the contrast, the um, outlining versus not outlining approach uh, in your experience? Uh, yes. Like I only did an outline because the editor wanted to see an outline, so um, it was a little bit different. And so kind of and I ended up rewriting the ending anyway so like I don't know how helpful it was in the end but um I do like when I do even when I pants I do outline but I only like outline like the next chapter or two ahead and then like you know I write those and then outline a little bit more so it's like wasn't completely like I don't ever really outline but um I don't know I still don't very much like it but it is a useful tool to kind of keep you on a track without going too far. Um, I don't know. I have a very mixed feeling because I really, I like to kind of grow things more organically. And sometimes they do like, sometimes going off track isn't necessarily a bad thing. And sometimes we're having to rewrite the ending isn't necessarily a bad thing either. Cause it's just all a part, part of the process. Did you uh, have to do an outline for the sequel to escaping Exodus? Uh, I have a, more, it was more of a synopsis that so wasn't as like detailed, which I think kind of works better for me. So I kind of know, you know, where things kind of end up and like, like the major beats that I want to hit, but it's like all of the details. Like for me, the fun is like discovering the details. And so I still had that, uh, process to go through. You said that um, to to promote these books, or I, I don't know if it was all of them or just Escaping Exodus, you put together a book launch team. Were you, could you talk about that? Yeah, that's like my favorite like part of the publishing process is putting together the book launch team. So I've done it for all three books. And it's just to help, you know, get some people on your side and like kind of have people to, to shout about your book on, you know, social media besides yourself. Um, and to get kind of like a little bit of pre-excitement going. 
Um, and so usually I, I print, I've done uh, trading cards for all of my books, which I really love doing too. And I like commission artists to draw a couple of the characters and like, you know, write a little um, snippet of a dialogue scene or something from the, the book to put on the, the card. And so I hand those out and I usually have like postcards and some stickers or like other little swaggy things that I mail them. So that's something like I hope to continue to do because it's a lot of fun and like just sending out emails to them, having like little contests and stuff. It's just, it makes the book launch. Uh, it gives me somewhere to funnel my anxiety. <laughs> so like during the book launch, cause it's kind of, you know, very an anxiety ridden time when your book comes out. And so it gives me a little bit of focus to put somewhere um, besides just like freaking out. <laughs> so when you say that you hand out the trading cards, this is like at conventions, you hand them out to people? Oh, yeah. Also, I hand them out to the conventions to um, I usually just have some on me wherever I go, um, do like book signings and stuff. So and they, you know, they make really good bookmarks. Um, and if I give them a couple, like maybe they'll give one to their friends and it's, uh, I know like the books, like my friend's books, like I want to talk about them. and like, I want to like shove like, you know, things at people so they can go buy my friend's books. And so like, I know I would appreciate like some of my friends send me like, um, their bookmarks and stuff so I can give out like when I'm at conventions. Cause you know, maybe a reader's not into what I've written, but they might be into like something one of my friends has written. So it's nice to have those. I haven't heard of other writers with their own trading cards. Is that kind of your thing or has anyone uh, picked up on that, copied that? I, I've seen them like kind of very infrequently. I don't know. If, like I've seen other people do it, but I have mostly people do like bookmarks and stuff. But I really like I really like the trading cards because I don't know. I just I like art a lot and I'm not a very good artist but I think I have a really good eye for art and so like finding you know going out and finding an artist who I think has the right style for the trading cards is really exciting um, and then seeing getting to see like what the characters look like is just really cool um, and like you know I try to describe them the best I can and just to, to I love how like art and writing kind of come together um, so that's I like to do that as much as I can yeah, that's cool. So it says in your bio, it says, uh, Nikki Drayden lives and writes in Austin, Texas, where being weird is highly encouraged, if not required. So could you talk about being weird, how being weird is uh, highly encouraged, if not required? Yeah, well, uh, Austin's motto is keep Austin weird. And like, I certainly feel like I'm doing my part and writing uh, some weird fiction. Uh, it's, I mean, it's a great place for creative people. Like, not as much as it used to be because a lot of people are getting priced out now, but um, there's a like a really vibrant uh, science fiction and fantasy community here. We have our our local science fiction and fantasy convention is Armadillo Con, and it's a really great place to like meet. It's kind of a more literary convention too, so it's a really great place to to meet people who like to read, you know, books that you like to read, and to just you know talk about and geek out over different things um and it's really fun it's just like kind of like you know going to your high school reunion every year where you get to meet your friends and see what they're up to uh, see what books and like we have a cohort of you know writers who kind of came up together and to see what they're doing um so yeah it's just a really weird place and i love that part of living here 
Yeah, you know, my, my girlfriend just started a creative writing MFA at Texas State. So we just moved to the Austin area. So I'm just curious to hear oh, anything cool. you can about, you know, what what the local scene is like. Wow, awesome. Yeah, you should definitely check out ArmadilloCon. There's also Slug Tribe, um, which is a critique group. I meet every other Wednesday. I forget if it's even or odd Wednesdays um, or second and fourth Wednesdays um, or Tuesdays. I think it's Tuesdays. But they're a good group to bring um, critique groups. And I, I kind of came through there after I when I started getting more into a genre group. Um, and I like a lot. I sold a lot of the stories that I critique through there. And so it's a really good um, place if you're just looking to get get some eyes on your pages and. Um, they're open to everyone, so it's really great and a lot of fun this year. Looking for something like that, and yeah, there's just there's all kinds of things in Austin that are weird to do. So I would say welcome. <laughs> oh, yeah, thank you. Do you know you know Christopher Brown, right? I just interviewed him a couple like a oh, couple yeah. weeks ago. Yeah, we are. Uh, we have the same editor, and like we we're definitely like we have had so many events together at this point. <laughs> Uh, but he's like, he's a really good friend and it's kind of a funny story. Uh, when I sold my book and I had known him for like years beforehand. And so like I had sold, just sold my book. And so like I'd gone out to lunch and like I was walking back from lunch and I saw this guy like in my office uh, parking lot. And I'm like, that guy looks a lot like Chris, Christopher Brow, but you know, I'm probably just saying things. And so like I walked past him and then he's like, Nikki, Nikki. And so I turn around like, oh, hey, it's Chris. And so like I told him, like, you know, I just sold a book. And then he's like, yeah, I just sold a book, too. And I'm like, really? And I told him who my editor was. And he's like, that's my editor, too. And so it was just like a really kind of like a surreal experience that uh, that happened to both of us because we'd both been writing for a long time at that point. And so, yeah, we've done probably at least like 10 like events together by now. And so we're pretty good friends. Yeah, so this is obviously an editor with uh, exquisite taste, I'm guessing. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, yes, uh, David Pomberico at Harbor Voyager. Like we, we've, I don't know, everything I've read that like from there, like I've loved. And so I guess like I feel like he does have really good taste. <laughs> <laughs> so I've read like several several books from Harbor Voyager lately and I've lo like loved them all which is like usually doesn't happen so um yeah it's fun and and uh even Chris's books his books are amazing he has uh Tropic of Kansas that just came out right Tropic of Kansas was the first one the second one was um Rule of Capture Rule of Capture and his are like dystopian uh dystopian u.s type books but they're really good and they have a little bit of like technology and big brother kind of things going on that are really creepy so yeah so when you say that you're doing your part to keep austin weird is it just you write weird fiction or is there anything else weird Do you, does your weirdness come out in any any other ways uh let's that is a great question um I would say that is definitely the primary way I, I spend so much time writing. I don't know. I don't have a whole lot of time for a lot of other things. I did just join a, a tabletop role-playing game, um, which I don't know. It's a little bit weird. That's uh, which, Bad which Role Models. They have a podcast. And it's uh, they're they're playing a 
a game called Villains and Vigilantes. It's like from the 80s. And superhero, it's superhero game, right? Yeah, superheroes. And so it's, it, that's my first one. And so it's been kind of a lot of pressure learning how to like play in front of people, like theoretically, like listening to it. So that's been kind of a lot of pressure, but it's been fun. Um, I don't know. I mostly I would say through fiction, I was just how I express things and occasional, occasional cosplay kind of thing. Well, I mean, you were doing your part for a while to keep the internet weird, right? As the managing editor of the Drabblecast. Ah, oh, yeah, I did. I was, I had a spit as um, editor at the Drabblecast and there was a lot of weird fiction coming to there. Thankfully, like I was not a slush reader because I heard it was just some really amazingly weird, <laughs> not necessarily in a good way, weird slush. Um, so by the time I got stuff, it was filtered. So I got to see the good, weird stuff. And yeah, there was a lot of good stories that came out of that. And I also had a kind of my pet project was doing Women and Aliens Month, um, which was um, alien stories written by women. And so like I'd get to... Um, like solicit some like big name authors to like contribute a story. And so I think we had Nettie Okorfor, um, Lauren Bukis and a lot of other people who, you know, gave us stories and it was a lot of fun um, putting those together. And I, yeah, I miss that and getting to hear, hear them, which is like, it's always fun to like hear a story in a different format. Do any of those stories that you edited stands out in your mind as being particularly weird? Oh man, it's been a while. <laughs> trying to remember. Remember, there was one story, and I don't quite remember what it was about. But it was so. I remember the beginning of it was just really rough and choppy, and like I, I'm kind of like a completionist, which is not a great thing to be when you're an editor <laughs> uh, reading like potential manuscripts. And so like, I'm like, oh, this story is not really clicking with me, but you know, I'm just going to finish it and see where it goes. But I ended up like loving the story and like, we were able to like tweak like the beginning of it to make it just like so awesome. And I, I don't remember what story it was, but um, yeah, it was just, it was the perfect like combination of weird it's like what i remember um i also saw that you have been recently you've been writing magic the gathering short stories and it looks like you have an overwatch novel coming out could you talk about how you got into that <laughs> it's been a really busy year so yeah so um magic gathering stories like came through my agent and she's like are you interested in writing some stories i'm like sure and so, and at first it was supposed to be like five stories, which seemed pretty manageable. Then it turned into 10 stories. And so there is a lot like writing 10 stories and they're like good, good chunk. They're not like short, like uh, flash fiction. They were probably like four to 6,000 words in range. Um, and so they're like pretty decent stories. So that's almost like a novel's worth of short stories to write in a very short amount of time. And a lot of onboarding because I hadn't played. And so, like, to figure out, like, everything that was going on, um, basically, like, have this giant, you know, encyclopedia of magic, like, dumped on me. And then, like, trying to go through, like, imagine, like, just, like, somebody telling you, if you're, you know, an alien from another planet. And they're like, you want to know about our planet? Here, just read this encyclopedia. And then you'll know everything. And it's just, like, impossible. Like, it's 
an impossible task, basically. And so I just kind of, you know, I came up with these characters and then just like tried to like find just the details I needed just to tell this one story because there was just so much of it. Like I would just be totally overwhelmed if I just tried to like incorporate it all into my brain. And so I read a draft and then go back in and do the research. So it's just like researching like South Africa. Um, but like, I'd have to go in and like find all these details. And then like, I, my manuscript would just be like lots of blank spots, like details here, add details here. And so like, I have to go back <laughs> and find those details, which was very time consuming. probably took longer than like writing the actual draft of the story. And so, but by the time, like the third or fourth story, it started to, started to click and they became easier to write. And I knew like where to go to find the details. And so it became, um, more like rote practice characterization. I learned a lot about my own writing process because it was the same, like panic. I panicked at the same stages each time. And so I knew like when the panic would come. And so I got to learn a lot about, uh, you know, I'll just need the beginnings are always hard and they're always like really crappy. Just get through the crappy beginning and then go back and make the crappy beginning better, do it again. And then like, once you feel good about the beginning, you can keep, you know, move to the middle and then go to the middle and you start panicking. How in the world am I going to pull this all together? But, you know, eventually you'll know how to pull it together and then you know, write the ending and then revise it. So it was like the same process over and over again, even though I still freak out at the same points. Like, at least I can kind of reassure myself that it's just like, that's just a normal part of the process and not something that, you know, I'm not going to be able to get through. And those are those are all online, those stories? Yeah, they're all online under a Magic Story. If you go to Magic the Gathering's website, and then they have a story section. And those stories were um, Ravnica Allegiant and uh, what was the other one called? Um, Guilds of Ravnica. And so there's two sets, and they're they're a lot of fun to write. Um, I think my favorite one was the Rakdos story, which like Rakdos are these kind of kind of like you know. This is very raunchy, like demons, a lot, you know, a lot of things going on. Uh, but I, you know, a death, these death parties and like all these like just things that are going on. And like, so I decided to tell a love story in, um, in this space where that is typically known for like you know, violence and sex and all these things, but it's like this really tender love story between a demon and a a woman who owns a, a effigy shop. And so she does like magic and makes um, like these enchanted, like, you know, dolls and things like that. And so, um, and it's just it's so, it's so sweet. It is it's dark and funny and also very sweet. So that one was like fun to give them a story that they, readers probably didn't expect coming from Rakdos. And how about the Overwatch novel? Well, what's, what was the deal with that? Um, that, I don't know if it's a, a, kind of officially been announced. I know it's on Amazon. Yeah. I just saw <laughs> so, it. On Amazon, like I've been kind of waiting for an official announcement, but yeah, it's, that was a lot of fun to write too. And like, I hope to like, just connect, hope it really resonates with the readers. Um, so yeah, if you want to, read more about that you can look under amazon i'm not sure how much i'm supposed to say right now but uh yeah 
I mean, you mentioned that you just started playing this tabletop role-playing game. Do you play a lot of video games as well? I I have before I became a writer. I played a lot of video games. <laughs> uh, I was really into, I was into The Sims. I play like a lot of uh, StarCraft. I think it was probably like one of my favorites. I played what was that game called? Dungeon Keeper. I think was another one of my like all time favorite games where you like you manage a dungeon, kind of like a, a dungeon simulation kind of thing. Um, now I'm like playing a lot of Minecraft um, and like Plants vs Zombies. Like and play play that and yeah, it's kind of been all over the place. Um, Startopia, I think that was something. Uh, I like like simulation games and um, kind of I don't know a lot of I'm not very good at like first person shooters at all because like like my reflexes are not that great but uh, let's see played like Dota like back in the day uh, I don't know I'm kind of like all over the place. Do you think any of the gaming has uh, influenced you as a writer at all? Like I could maybe see a little bit of StarCraft influence in um, Escaping Exodus, for example. Oh, yeah. I play the Zerg. Like I just like all the like squishy, icky things are just like, I just love, I just love it so much. And just like imagining, uh, I don't know, like if that's your life, like all these gross things. And like how many things that we do as like humans that are like someone else would think is like totally gross like i don't know i just like thinking about the things that we just come to accept as normal part of living yeah yeah absolutely all right so we're pretty much out of time uh so do you have any just uh, final thoughts or any other projects you want to mention uh i'm just you know sitting here writing <laughs> and whatever tickles my fancy go check out my books and you know you can get them at the bookstore in the library and uh, you can check out my website at NikkiDrayden.com. Uh, I have a, a mailing list that I f- infrequently send emails out to. That's your thing. And that's about it. Yeah, I would definitely recommend Escaping Exodus. I mean, I think one of the things I think is most valuable about science fiction is how it can portray cultures that are different from ours in a believable way and also, you know, show what it would be like to live inside an alien monster, you know, and, and what would that and, and to have thought through, wait, what would that actually be like and what would the different roles have to be in the cultural values that would reinforce that and everything. And I think um, that Nikki did just an amazing job with all of that in this book. So if you're looking for examples of that sort of world building, definitely check out this new novel, Escaping Exodus, uh, by our guest today, Nikki Drayden. So, Nikki, thank you so much for joining us. All right. Thanks so much for having me. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Nikki Drayden for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. 
Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.